Hey, faithful listeners, this is a first for us, and I hope you'll enjoy it. We're trying something new here at Kindly Media and been working on something very exciting. In short, making new podcasts. We're still focusing on business and money, but in the broadest sense, the good and the bad, and we've just released our first true crime show. It's about a Hong Kong crime boss obsessed with money who comes up against billionaires and goes further than anyone in history to get rich. The show is called Bad Money, and the first season is called Big Spender, which is the nickname of this particular character and kingpin. We've posted the first episode here for your listening pleasure. That's what this episode is. If you like this episode and want to hear what happens next to Big Spender, then don't forget to search for Bad Money, because this is the Secret Leaders feed, and you won't get it otherwise. So just search Bad Money in your podcast player. Now, let's get you on a plane, train, or automobile and take you to the bustling streets of Hong Kong. After, a quick word from the show's sponsor. I've got a question for you. Have you ever got an email or text from a company that was so perfectly timed that you bought something from them right then? You're lounging around at home feeling hungry. Then bang, a pizza company sends you the deal you didn't even know you wanted. How do they know I'm sitting in my PJs pining for stuffed crust? Well, that's where Klaviyo comes in. Klaviyo is the email and SMS marketing platform to send messages just like this. They're used by over 100,000 e-commerce brands like Demologica, Wilkinson Sword, and Alessi, who use Klaviyo to build deeper relationships with their customers and ultimately grow their businesses. It's time to talk to your customers like you know them, because you do, with Klaviyo. Learn more at klaviyo.com big. That's Klaviyo, K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash big, B-I-G. On a bustling road in Kowloon, Hong Kong, the most densely populated place on earth, Guai Pinghong and seven of his associates are peering out from a van parked across the street. A passerby wouldn't look twice. They might think the men are just people watching on the busy high street. But inside the van, the gang had begun strapping on bulletproof vests and sliding magazines into their handguns. It's rare for, for criminals to have guns. This guy had his own arsenal. He had grenades, he had AK-47s, he had shotguns, pistols. He was a problem. Guai, better known by his street name, the King of Thieves, gives his team the nod and the rear doors of the van fly open. The gang spills onto the street and makes a beeline for a luxury watch store across the road. Moments later, the gangsters are inside the store, waving their weapons around and telling everyone to get down on the ground. One discharges a warning shot to shut everyone up whilst another takes the sales girl hostage to ensure no one makes any stupidly heroic moves. The remaining members of the gang smash the store's counters and fill their bags with two million Hong Kong dollars worth of watches. That's about a quarter of a million US dollars. Having grabbed their stash, the gang are ready to clear out. But the sound of sirens signals that the Hong Kong police have arrived. With officers now stationed outside the shop doors, there's nowhere to go but through. So the King of Thieves and his men reload their weapons, storm out of the shop and open fire. People are screaming and scattering in all directions. It's chaos. The gangsters exchange over a hundred shots with the police. Seven officers and two civilians are hit. For the King of Thieves, it's unavoidable collateral damage 
worth the multi-million dollar haul. As the gangsters disperse, only the wounded and terrified crowd is left behind. Hong Kong in the 1980s is a land of extremes. It's still a colony of the British, but its free market economy is booming. Real estate prices are skyrocketing. Money is flowing. Fortunes are being made. And with this prosperity come the gangsters. Ruthless criminals who terrorize the streets in broad daylight, stuff their pockets with diamond rings and gold necklaces, dodge bullets hot from the guns of the police, and disappear into the city without a trace. Everyone, it seems, wants a piece of Hong Kong's riches. Even across the border in communist China, President Deng Xiaoping proclaims, to get rich is glorious. It created a buzz that had not been seen in China for decades. Richard Cook, a longtime feature writer for the South China Morning Post, says this was the start of a major cultural shift. There was just this frenzy of commercialism, booming economy, of people purchasing TVs, of people starting businesses, of construction. The idea that anyone can escape the extreme poverty of communist China takes hold, particularly in southern China, the gateway to neighboring Hong Kong. It was crazy, and to some extent it was lawless. It became this free-spirited, free-booting, capitalist wonderland. And it's in this capitalist wonderland that figures like the gunslinging King of Thieves make their name. Beginning his criminal career as a two-a-penny pickpocket in China, the King of Thieves crosses the border into Hong Kong to pursue bigger dreams. Well, not so much bigger dreams as bigger crimes. When he arrives in Hong Kong, he finds his niche, armed robberies. The King of Thieves was, as the name suggests, he was a, a criminal mastermind. Over 20 armed robberies suspected to have been led by the King of Thieves take place in Hong Kong throughout the 80s and 90s. Officers are shot in the head, onlookers are killed in the crossfire, and every time, the King of Thieves manages to escape with millions of dollars of jewelry. Eventually, in a rare act, the Hong Kong police post a record 2 million Hong Kong dollars reward, a quarter of a million US dollars for his capture. The Hong Kong police got Interpol to issue a red notice they alerted law enforcement agencies around the world and they, they said that he was Hong Kong's most wanted man. Even with law enforcement around the world looking for him, the King of Thieves manages to elude his captors. The police can't keep up, let alone catch the guy. Honestly, it's getting a bit embarrassing. So, finally, the cops decide to bring in the big guns, their last resort, a special task force called the Flying Tigers. They were the big tough guys that you that wear bandanas and full-face helmets. Supposedly a legend that they certainly did nothing to stop. They were trained by the UK's SAS. With the Flying Tigers now on board, the hunt begins afresh. It's 3.30 in the morning on Christmas Eve 2003. The Flying Tigers have received intelligence that the King of Thieves is hiding out in an apartment. He was preparing for a, a robbery. He was holed up in, um, I think, the top floor of a building in, in Kowloon. The Flying Tigers take no risks as they slowly creep up to the building. 120 Flying Tigers, a huge amount of police officers, closed the building down, locked it off at dawn. 120 officers in grey helmets, balaclavas, goggles, gloves, bulletproof vests, 
with guns strapped to their thighs. They seal off a four-block radius around a suspected apartment and check the identities of everyone coming in and out of the area. They went in there, ready for a big firefight. The Flying Tigers trained their machine guns on the door of the flat. After a few hard kicks, the door caves in and the officers fan out into the apartment. They found grenades, an AK-47, a machine gun, shotguns, pistols, and lots of bullets, like hundreds of bullets. It's the biggest seizure of firearms in Hong Kong in 30 years. Then the Flying Tigers see him, Hong Kong's most wanted man. The man the world has been searching for, for years. He was asleep, and they just picked him up like a baby. Not a single shot was fired during the raid. The King of Thieves was sentenced to 24 years in prison. Another case closed. Another victory. You see, as it turns out, the King of Thieves wasn't quite the mastermind people made him out to be. He was violent, sure. But his story is typical of a lot of high-profile gangsters operating in Hong Kong at the time. Every now and then, a new face would emerge. Make it big. Dodge the authorities for a while. But then, it would all come crashing down. Eventually, they'd all be brought to justice. Except, what law enforcement didn't realize is that whilst they're focusing all their efforts on the King of Thieves, another gangster is quietly rising through the ranks. Another man is growing in prominence, readying himself to carry out some of the most shocking crimes the world has ever seen. And this new guy, he's slippery. Someone who would outsmart the authorities time and again with his sensational stunts. That is, until he takes things a step too far. And his actions end up tearing a hole in the fabric of society, provoking a geopolitical crisis, destabilizing human rights and threatening Hong Kong's very existence. You're listening to Bad Money, a new series from Kindling Media and Vespucci about power, wealth and wrongdoing. I'm Jason Wong. This season, Big Spender, Episode 1. An uncommon criminal. It's July 1991. A van containing over 167 million Hong Kong dollars in cash, around 21 million US dollars, is making a delivery to Kai Tech Airport, where the money will be flown to a bank in Taiwan. It's emblazoned with the words, secure, armored car. You wouldn't be able to penetrate it too easily unless someone opened the door. Which would never happen because these vans do not stop for anything or anyone. And anyway, even if you are able to get past that thick armoured exterior... At least a couple of the crew members would have had shotguns. Criminal barrister Daniel Marash works in Hong Kong and is particularly knowledgeable about this incident. We'll learn more about why that is later. Daniel says the armoured car is following its regular route when something unusual happens. The van made a totally improper and unscheduled stop outside a toilet near the airport. 
One of the security team on the van says he needs to go. So the driver pulls over. The van doors open. Three gunmen rush inside. The van driver said that after they rushed on board, he was sitting in the driver's seat and he was grabbed by somebody by the hair. The van driver said, the man said to me, if you don't open the safe, I'll blow your fucking head off. With a gun to his temple, the driver opens the safe and the three thieves start packing 167 million Hong Kong dollars into bags. They chuck the bags into the back seats of their getaway vehicle and speed off, leaving the security guards blindfolded, gagged and tied up, still inside the armored vehicle. It's the largest cash heist in Hong Kong history, and it's been executed flawlessly. By the time the police catch up to the getaway van, the thieves have abandoned it, but they've left something behind. Of the $167 million, a million dollars was left in the getaway van. The assumption was it was for the police. There are no other clues to go on, so the police bring the security guards in for questioning. This is when the van driver recounts something strange about the thief who threatened him. He said that when he grabbed him by the hair and pulled his head back, he felt that there was something wrong with the man's grip, that he couldn't grip his hair properly. He also says that two of the thieves wore masks, but the one who grabbed his hair didn't so he caught a glimpse of his face before he was blindfolded. The police put two and two together pretty quickly. This thief must have known exactly what was in the van and the routes it was going to take. Certainly not easy to rob a van unless you've got inside information and you happen to know it's going to stop in a particular place. <laughs> and this van should never have stopped. But for some reason it did. And it couldn't be a coincidence the gunmen were just waiting there. The police suspect that the heist was an inside job. So they questioned the woman responsible for overseeing the van routes in the control room. She had access to the information about the van delivery time and the amount on the van. They recognize her immediately, Lo Yim Fong. She's the wife of a young petty criminal they've encountered before, Jiang Zi Kyung. It can't be a coincidence. The police officers arrest the couple and take them down to the station. But they don't have a lot of evidence to tie the couple to the heist. If the police are going to nail them for this crime, they'll need to prove that Jung took part. So they scoop up Jung and a handful of men that look similar to him. If you saw him in the street, you wouldn't have looked twice. The van driver studies the men in the lineup. Nothing special about him, to be honest. I guess he was about five feet, 10 inches, something like that. The driver looks each man up and down. He wasn't an overly powerful-looking man. He was just an ordinary, ordinary chap. Wasn't badly dressed, wasn't spectacularly dressed, certainly wasn't in a suit. And then the van driver rests his eyes on Joe. That's him, he concludes. So, Jung is charged, and the authorities seem to be on the cusp of victory. Eventually, the case makes its way all the way up to the Hong Kong High Court, the highest court in the land, reserved for major crimes that require a jury. 167 million Hong Kong dollars is quite a chunk of change, after all. Barrister Daniel Marash, who we've been hearing from, is hired to represent Jong's wife. The evidence against her was totally circumstantial, that she was married to him and she had access to the information. So it was basically their relationship and her role in the control room. There was no other identification evidence or phone call evidence or anything against her. 
that makes it pretty easy for Daniel and his team to clear her name. But Jung has two charges against him, conspiracy to rob and attempting to bribe the police. Firstly, of the $167 million, a million dollars was left in the getaway van. It's my understanding that was for the police to, to go away. But perhaps unusually, the police handed in the million dollars. <laughs> so uh, that didn't work. And that was allegedly a bribe. The prosecution's case largely rests on this alleged bribe and the van driver's statement. I really, really doubted the van driver's identification. It also doesn't add up that two of the gunmen covered their faces. But according to the driver, Jong didn't. How stupid would you be to get on there without some sort of mask or something else? And the driver's claims about feeling that there was something wrong with the hand that grabbed his hair. That doesn't make sense to Daniel either. Whilst Jong Zikyong was at the station, an officer took his fingerprints. In court, the prosecution caused this officer to take the stand. The fingerprint officer said, when I came to take the man's fingerprints, there was something wrong with his hand. He had a craw hand. And I had a great difficulty in taking his fingerprints. I couldn't get him to put his fingers on the pad properly. Chung Chi Kung had been slashed on the wrist when he was a youth, and he did have a problem with his hand. And he couldn't open his fingers fully. The police tried to link that evidence up with the fact that he couldn't grab the man's hair properly. But Daniel and Jong Zikyong's legal team had got Jong's hand tested at the hospital and found that while he had trouble opening his hand fully, he had no trouble making a fist. He could close his hand with 100% grip strength. If Jong was the man that threatened the driver, he wouldn't have struggled to grab the van driver's hair. The defense team needs to prove to the jury that the driver's story doesn't add up. So Daniel and his colleagues come up with a plan. Jung's lawyer asks the judge if Jung can leave the dock. Jung goes to stand behind the fingerprint officer as requested and waits for further instruction. He then said to Jung uh, Chi-Kung, I want you to take hold of the officer's hair and I want you to pull it as hard as you can. <laughs> Jung's face lit up like a beacon. He grabbed this officer by the hair and just about ripped his head off. And I think the jury very quickly got the message that there was nothing wrong with this man's grip. Unfortunately, the judge didn't think it was very funny and he got a bit angry and sent Chung straight back to the dock. <laughs> As the jury prepares to give their verdict, tensions are high. The decision is announced. Chung Zikyong is convicted. Both the conspiracy to rob and bribery charges stick. I remember when the forelady came in to announce the jury's verdict, she was visibly distressed. And I didn't know why. He's sentenced to 18 years in prison. Daniel can't shake the feeling that the police are out to get Jong. He wonders if someone fed the van driver information about Jong's hand to frame him. He wonders if the lineup ID was compromised. With the police, when they think they've got the right man, um, they think they're doing a public service if they nail him one way or another. <laughs> Daniel goes home, certain that something isn't right but unable to do anything about it. Until later, he receives a phone call. It's Jong and he wants to meet. The interesting thing about him was this. He was a street kid, grew up on Kowloon side in the rougher parts of Hong Kong, but he spoke quite decent English, which was really a bit surprising. Jung wants to appeal the verdict and wants Daniel and his team to defend him. Jung never told me he was guilty. What Jung said to me uh, at all times 
is Mr. Marash. I'm telling you I'm not guilty of the bribery. I absolutely promise you I never tried to bribe that police officer. It turns out, while Joan has been in jail awaiting his high court trial, he's been busy. Instead of building his body in his new cell, he's been sharpening his mind. He's been studying the law and thinks he's found a way to get himself out. He tells Daniel. Challenge the identification evidence in relation to the robbery. So Daniel does as he's told. Over the next few months, he and Jung work together. You know, with most clients, you don't necessarily believe what they tell you, but you defend them anyway because you have to. That's the oath you take. Uh, but with him, I never thought he told me a lie. Bearing in mind in particular, he said, don't ask me about the robbery, just challenge the identification evidence. And I didn't do the bribery. It seems like Jung did do the robbery, even if he won't openly admit it. But just like Daniel, he suspects the van driver's identification of him was phony. Now all he has to do is prove it. In terms of being a client, he was a gentleman. He was polite. He asked intelligent questions. He asked me how I was going to do things. Whenever I had a client that I thought was intelligent enough to understand what would happen, I always tried to explain it to the client, and I did with him. And I thought he was um, a really good client. On the outside... Joan's wife gets to work too. She calls a press conference to support her husband. Through tears, she lifts her skirt in front of a crowd of reporters, revealing a long, thin red scar on her thigh. She claims the police are using force and begs for her husband to be released. The police deny this. Joan's conviction rests almost solely on the van driver's statement, so when they go to court again, Daniel cross-examines the van driver until his testimony falls apart. The judge calls off the hearing in favor of Jong before the trial is even halfway through. Not only is Jong free, but the judge awards him 8 million Hong Kong dollars, a million US dollars in compensation. Daniel walks out the courtroom breathing a sigh of relief. They've done it. But then, later that day, when he turns on the news, he sees something unexpected. Jung is standing outside the courtroom in a pink striped shirt and beige pants with his mobile phone clipped to his belt. And he threw a wonderful press conference, a wonderful conference saying, thank God for Mr. Marash who saved my life and my family and blah, blah, blah. The smile on Jung's face is huge as he throws his arms into the air with joy and pumps his fist above his head as photographers scramble to get a shot. The police think I'm suspicious, so they arrest me. They have no evidence, no stolen goods, they found nothing. The judge was very critical about it. He's been a judge for so many years, and he's never tried a case with such poor evidence. No one else in history of all the people I defended, uh, and many of whom luckily got off, no one ever did that before or again. And Jong's celebration doesn't stop there. After his release from Stanley Prison, a maximum security institution on the outer reaches of Hong Kong Island, Jong is on a high. In the weeks after his acquittal, strange things started happening. A small gang stole what effectively is a steamroller, um, a great big clanking metal vehicle that you use to flatten roads. They stole that somewhere in central Hong Kong and they drove it to Stanley. If you know the geography of Hong Kong, Stanley's on the other side of Hong Kong Island, 
Conquer Island is, is hilly, mountainous, and there's narrow roads that lead to this prison. It seems Jung and his buddies have somehow managed to steal this steamroller in the dead of night and are taking it for a joyride over the hills of Hong Kong all the way to Stanley Prison. And started bashing down the doors. Was he going to go and get some friends in there? Who knows? He or whoever did that also sprayed graffiti on the doors and the walls of Stanley Prison that said, treat my friends well or you will eat shit. It's as if Jong is taunting the guards with his newfound freedom. He drove up to the prison in his banana yellow Lamborghini. He shows up in broad daylight and struts before the guards. He's trying to tell them, I'm untouchable. I won. He was a journalist's dream. He was everywhere. The papers at the time, they loved these salacious stories. They loved the idea of making this guy into a kind of anti-hero folk star. Jung isn't bothered that his face and crimes are plastered across every newsstand in Hong Kong. Quite the contrary. He revels in it. And probably the police didn't know how to deal with him. They probably were scared of him or scared of his next move. Other gangsters were perhaps perturbed because he was rocking the boat, but everyone was in awe of him. The police are, yet again it seems, out of their depth. He was, a, he was becoming something of a superstar. But this is only the beginning. He's that guy that you, that will, will never stop and will, will keep thinking, keep planning, keep coming out with something bigger. Joan wants more. And it's that constant drive for more and more that eventually transformed Jong from an opportunistic petty criminal into the mastermind behind some of the biggest heists the world has ever seen. A man whose reputation earns him a new name. Big Spender. This isn't normal criminal behavior. Dealing steamrollers and trying to drive it through the city's higher security prison begs the question, well, what next? Big Spender is a production of Kindling Media and Vespucci and is narrated and hosted by me, Jason Wong. The next episode is available to listen to right now. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to get new episodes as soon as they're released. The series producer is Mira Kumar. The story editor is Mira Sharma. Thomas Curry is the managing producer. For Kindling Media, the executive producers are Will Stoneman, Ruth Edwards, Rich Martell, and Dan Murray-Serta. For Vespucci, the executive producers are Daniel Turkin, Johnny Galvin, and Matt Willis. Original music, audio mix, and sound design by Dominic Gozo. Special thanks to Pete Sale and Yupang George Chan.